Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Stephen Bloomberg to our show. Dr. Bloomberg is the president of Southeast Arkansas College in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Hi, Steve. I'm happy to have you on our podcast today. Dave, great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast and talk about, I think, something that you and I both love, and that's higher education and the opportunities that we give our students. Yes, sir. Well, first, tell me about Southeast Arkansas College and why students select your institution. Sure, Dave. So it's interesting. Our, our history started in 1959. We were then Pines Vocational Technical School. So we started out life as a, as a technical school. In 1991, we became Southeast Arkansas Technical College. And then in 1993, we became Southeast Arkansas College. So we went through this sort of transitional process from a, a being born, for lack of a better term, as a technical school to a comprehensive community college. So what that looks like today is we have over 45 different degree programs for our students to pursue. And talking about why students choose our institution, I think there's a couple different reasons. One, we've got some really great historical programs that have excellent outcomes. Students get great jobs. Our nursing programs, probably not surprising to you, um, our strength of our institution, our respiratory technician program, radiologic technology, which is a really fancy way to say x-ray technician, um, some of our more hard skill programs, welding, HVAC, our new cybersecurity program. So these are all programs that have great outcomes, but more importantly, they lead to great jobs. And I think students come because of that. But once they're here, I think they also discover this culture of caring that we have in other words, going whatever the extra mile means to take care of our students, you know, having a food pantry that helps out with hunger issues, having a clothes closet that helps students who sometimes need something to wear. Maybe it's for a job interview. Maybe it's to go to class. And so I think when you have excellent academic programs and then you have what you and I probably know as holistic support services, things that are intended to help students outside the classroom. I think that's why our students are here. Yeah, you know, I I uh, actually, uh, probably this was in the 90s here in Montana, I started out at a college of technology. Right before then, it was the VoTech that turned into a college of technology that turned into a city college. That that transformation is so cool to watch and watch how the community just, just goes crazy and evolve or revolves around that type of new opportunities that wasn't there just a few years ago. Yeah, it really does. And, and I think it also ties the institution closer to the communities and and in many cases the counties or the regions that it serves and i think you're right i think there's a lot of enthusiasm that's generated by that relationship yeah well what's new at your college you know it's interesting we got a lot of really cool things going on i'm, I'm going to tell you about one that's going on right now and then quickly talk about the future but one that i think is really unique is that that I'm also an economic developer, and, and being an economic developer as a college president has been exponentially helpful in our relationships with business and industry, with helping to recruit new business. So recently, we were involved in the efforts to, to recruit a new technology business to Pine Bluff. And you say, well, that's great because, you know, business recruitment is important. What's different about this relationship is this business 
is actually housed on our campus. So they're not just a partner in the word of partner, but their name is PeopleSource. They're a public benefit corporation. They're they're a high-tech company. Um, They already have 81 employees in about six months. Dave, they'll build up to a workforce of over 250. And what's really cool about the relationship we do all of their training for them pre-employment. So when they're 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 going through the hiring process, they they go through what we call foundational training for two weeks to a month, depending upon what area they're going into. And then our students in our degree program, specifically things like cybersecurity, business analytics, now have an opportunity to have internships on the same college campus. Wow. When they graduate, they have a job opportunity that is a quarter of a mile away from where they learned. And, and so for so many students who have barriers, transportation, you know, if, if you can't get to a job because you don't have reliable transportation, well, think about having co-located a relevant education and an employer that offers you an opportunity through a paid internship and then a job. And I think that's a really unique relationship because um, I don't know of any other colleges and universities in our state and probably very few across the country that have that kind of symbiotic relationship with an employer. I have, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of leaders over the last couple of years, and I don't remember anybody having something like this. That is so exciting. It's just, it's really an awesome thing. And we we are are so fortunate that we were a part of not only the recruitment process, but when PeopleSource was trying to figure out, well, you know, where do we go? They go through this the, the process that everybody does about having requirements for a facility. And I I, I commented to their their founder, and I said, well, look, we, we have space on our campus. I mean, what would you think about, you know, co-locating? And, and if we really mean partnership, what better way to do it? And so they were really excited about it. Matter of fact, they're they're looking at this model, replicating it in other parts of the country. So it's just kind of cool to be a part of something that's unique, but more importantly, um, offers kind of an unprecedented opportunity for students, particularly in technology fields. Yeah, for sure. So what else is cooking? I think you know the 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 thing that I'm I'm really happy about in the future is that that right now we're like many community colleges we are a commuter campus so as you know students arrive they they take part in classes mm-hmm. and any activities and they leave we're getting ready in about 45 to 60 days to break ground on about an 18 million dollar uh student residential housing project coupled mm-hmm. with about a 14 million dollar student center project so when that whole uh, complex is finished, we'll have 316 units of housing. We'll have a new 33,000 square foot student center to support food service, to support some programmatic expansions for us, like our cybersecurity program, nursing and allied health. And so um, that's a really big deal for our institution because so many of our students, you're not surprised by this part, are not only food insecure, but are housing insecure as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always said when you see students sleeping in their car and it, it's, but, but, oh my gosh, are you ahead of the curve on so many things? <laughs> you know, it, it's I really mean, good. It, it's a good time to be here. You know, I'm yeah. very fortunate to have a campus culture that, that, you know, believes in the kind of risks that we're taking and a governing board, most importantly, as the president that, that has believed in, in this sort of grand plan we've set forth and, and has really, bought in and become invested. And so there, there's a lot of transformation, but I also think that transformation is is necessary too, because I don't think we can do business the 
the same way we've done it in higher ed for the last 25 or 30 years and ex and expect it to sustain. So I think for many of us, it means reimagining or reengineering your business model. Yeah, that's what I meant by ahead of the curve. I I'm watching that people are now starting to struggle with we need to do something new, but they can't they don't know what the next steps are. So it sounds like you've already laid a, a pretty good foundation to, to move forward. Certainly trying to get there, no no doubt about it. But yeah. there's there's a lot of really, really just great stuff. And I think that's energizing not only for our students, but our faculty and staff to know that that our institution is committed to a plan of growth. And that that plan of growth doesn't just span the next year or two years. This is really a long term, you know, 15 plus year plan of growth. Yeah. Well, let's change subjects for a second and talk about you. So tell me a little bit about the path that led you to become the president. So it's interesting. You know, I, I believe it or not, I knew more than 20 years ago that I wanted to become a college president. And, mm -hmm. and I want to say the reason why is one of my first mentors was a college president and and he was kind of like my second father. So Dave, I, I came from uh, a family that, that didn't have great means. I was a first generation college student. So I was the first one in my family to even think about going to college. My parents, wonderful people. I, I can't thank them enough for what they've done for me. Um, neither one of them had a high school diploma. And so coming from that background, higher ed is kind of this mystical thing that, you know, you didn't really know anything about. And so I had a college president who who really saw things in me that at the time I didn't see and and became my mentor. And, and because of him, um, he really opened up my eyes to this world. I mean, when I was growing up, I would have never thought of becoming a college president. That just wasn't even a dream I could probably comprehend. But because of of really my first mentor and when I became a college president in 2018, um, I dedicated that to him. Unfortunately, in 1996, he passed away from from renal cell cancer. But I was with him when he passed away, and this is always an emotional moment. So I apologize if I get a little emotional. I promised him right before he passed, that in order to honor his legacy, I would become a college president. And Dave, at the time, I didn't know how that was going to happen. I mean, I, I I figured that that maybe I'd get lucky, and you know, things would happen. And and because of the things that that he taught me. Because of the confidence he gave me, I was able to launch on this path, and and it's taken me across the country. So I've served in California, Texas, Florida, Oklahoma, and now Arkansas. And the depth and breadth of that experience has just been pretty amazing. Oh my goodness! You know, and I I can imagine that with your background, you probably have a a good connection with students there. I that's. That's the best part of the job. I mean, really, it is because students are what what feed us. They're what energize us when we see um, the power that higher ed can can use transforming a student's life. I mean, as I just stop and think about that for a second, that's the coolest thing. And so having that that relationship with students and I, I always encourage our students come by my office, tell me, tell me how you're doing, tell me what's going on. And I really get to live their life. And that's kind of exciting because you see so many students who are like me, who didn't know what to do, didn't know how they were going to do it. But Dave, if somebody just instills in them a modicum of confidence, you, you know, from your career as well, that, that little bit of confidence gives them an opportunity to do things that probably they never dreamed about. Well, it's been the proudest moments for you so far at the college? You know, one of the 
proudest moments that I had. So I, I have a president's leadership class that I teach because I think that's important. And we, we talk about leadership and what it really means. And, and it's a really, really engaging class. So at, at the conclusion of my last president's leadership class, my students had an end of the class project. So I divided them up into four groups. They had this fictitious company that, that they were coming in as a consultant trying to help this company that was dying. And so they gave presentations and they put together all these materials. And so what I did was I had a, a, a panel of five business leaders from our community evaluate their proposals. And so not only was it a great opportunity for some of our business leaders to see our students, but it was really exciting for our students. And so um, one of them was one of the executives uh, from a new casino and resort. So we have a $350 million uh, casino resort project here in Pine Bluff. It's the largest cultural tourism project in the history of the state of Arkansas. And so one of their executives was here when the class was done, we called all the students back in so they could kind of meet the judges. And, and he said to me and the students, he said, I'm so impressed by what I saw, you know, the real world skills, the way that you analyze meeting the students, the situation. He said, I want, there's 21 students in the class. He said, I will offer every single one of you a job right now if you want it. And that's, I mean, that's why we do what we do is to give those students opportunities. So obviously I had several students who took advantage of that and and have done great things with a great employer who believes in them. But, but I mean, to have someone kind of judge this competition and see the work that these students put into it, you know, some of them made business cards and they made their own portfolios and they really took on the persona of owning this consulting business. And, and, you know, I hear these employers say, if I could just get my employees to do what what you all just did, and that's why this gentleman said, "Look, I mean, I'm in charge of hiring literally hundreds of people. If you want a job, you got it." And so that that was just one of those culminating moments of of getting to see students got the message and and they took it and they put it into practicality and and really impressed some people that had not had a chance to see what they could do. So, as a college president, you're standing in a classroom teaching a class. Yes, absolutely. I think you have to. And, and and so for me, I have, again, what's called a president's leadership class. Students apply. I actually interview every student and ask them, you know, why do you want to go into this? What do you want to do? What do you expect this to do for you? And so, so it's such an energizing experience because we, the curriculum I built for it goes all the way from assessing personalities to talking about different personal leadership types to keeping a journal throughout the class because a journal is such a great way to document what you do. Um, real life examples, um, bringing in political figures, business leaders, so students have a chance to talk to them. Um, my last class visited with Governor Asa Hutchinson. So we met Governor Hutchinson at the Capitol. My students had a chance to ask him questions. And so it's it's all about exposing students to things that again, maybe as you and I are, uh, were students, we didn't get that opportunity. Well, that, that's a great idea. And I'll tell you something else too, is I have talked to quite a few leaders who came from faculty and really miss teaching. And they always tell me, boy, I wish I could just do it. You're, you're like one of the first I've talked to that's actually able to do that. So good for you. Well, when you're president, the great thing is, you know, you get to say this is a priority. You know, yeah. I mean, that that's the and and look, there's never enough time in the day to do this job. And, and it's really easy for all of us to say, 
I, I just don't have enough time because I've got all these things going on. But but it is one of the most entered and as a former faculty member as well, to your point, it's just such an energizing thing because it keeps you grounded and, right. and you don't forget why you're here. Yeah, I wish now I kind of wish I'd come out of retirement. That's something I would really like to try. That seems like would be so much fun for both you and the students. It, it is. It's such a, a, just a really cool thing. And they, and students really appreciate the opportunity. I mean, I've used my president's leadership class as focus groups and said, so what do you think about, you know, what we're doing at the college? I mean, what, what's your thoughts? I mean, what better way um, to have authentic feedback from students because they, they develop a relationship with me. And so they, they know that they can say however they feel. And so that's when you get some really great feedback from students because they have an air of, of comfortability and they're not afraid. Well, should I say that in front of the college's president? <laughs> um, best kind of feedback you can get, honestly. Yeah. Well, what's been some of the biggest lessons you've learned as an academic leader? I think one of the biggest lessons is that, that, particularly now, is that we have to re-engineer the approach to higher education. And let me tell you what I think, for at least me and, and, and our college, what that means. And so I think for a very long time in higher education, the message was, if you as a student wanted to be successful, you've got to get a four-year degree. And there's certainly, as you and I both can attest, many, many, many jobs that that's necessary. But if you look at the change in our economy, sometimes a four-year degree isn't necessary. Sometimes a two-year degree isn't necessary. I'll give you a great example. So a year ago, we started a new commercial driver's license program mm. um, because, as you, again, probably know, there's a critical shortage in the logistics and supply chain of, of over-the-road drivers who make really, really good money. And so our CDL program is less than six weeks. Um, we have a manual transmission truck. And while that may sound strange, if a student's not trained on a manual transmission right. and they go out and the employer doesn't have manual, they have to go back and pay for another certification. And so this is a program less than six weeks. You can come out and make, in most cases, more than $50,000 a year. And so I think part of the thing that we have to realize academically is we have to redesign the individual college journey because for that student, six weeks is enough. For some other students, maybe they want to be an elementary school teacher, then we know that, that a baccalaureate is required and a, and a state certification is required. But I think we really have to look at the pathways to jobs and say to students, you know, what, what does your journey look like? What do you want to do? And in some cases, six weeks later, you can be on the on-ramp to a great job. And the great thing is you can always come back. But the point is, is that that how do we re-engineer what we've done for a very long time to be more individualized? And I think that's the challenge. I remind our students all the time that, that being a lawyer is a vocation. Being a machinist, being a welder is a vocation. And by the way, the welding vocation and the machine tool vocation pay exceedingly well. Well, do you have any advice for new college presidents? You know, it's, it, 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 I do. And so you're, you're going to, people always tell you as a college president that you should be visible and that you should be transparent. And so there's, there's all these buzzwords and I don't disagree with those, but I'm, I'm going to say there's one thing as a college president that you should be above all else. And it's one word and it's authentic. Because if you're authentic, transparency comes easy. 
if you're authentic, then you're visible. And I think for me, the question I ask myself all the time, am I being authentic? Do people see me as a genuine person? I think many, many years ago in past decades, you know, the college president was this person that that was kind of like a mythical figure on college campuses because you didn't see them. You might catch a glimpse and say, man, I think that that was the, the president. And, and in today's world, you have to be an authentic, genuine person. And I think that's what most students want. And so, you know, again, transparency, visibility, certainly important, but but I would, would encourage new college presidents to be authentic to who them to who they are. Um, it's okay to be vulnerable sometimes. It's it's okay to show that, but make sure that people know that as an authentic leader, you have everyone's best interest. And that's a really large job description and a very serious job. But being authentic also means that you're not trying to be something that you're not either. It doesn't mean you're not trying to always become better at your craft. But authenticity, Dave, I think is so important. Yeah, excellent point. Well, what do you think are the major challenges that colleges will face over the next five to 10 years? You know, I'll say that that we have, I think, more, and being in this business close to 30 years, I, I think there's more challenges today than probably in the last 50 years. And is the pandemic part of that? Yes. But some of the challenges were already here. So, I mean, I, I think there's some really obvious ones. If you look at college enrollment across the country, whether it's community colleges or four years, there's been a decline in participation, particularly community colleges. And I think one of the issues we're confronting is across the country, there's a growing debate about the value, quote unquote, of a college degree. And when you couple that with 1.8 trillion, I think is the number right now, uh, current student debt in America, um, you couple that number with a question about, well, look, if you do go for a four-year degree, the average cost of a state university, if you're on campus, is anywhere from 25000 on up. Um, and so you graduate with a four-year degree with an investment of over $100,000. What do you get in return? What's the ROI for that? And so I, I think for us in higher ed, this is really a time that's going to define our business for probably the next 50 or 100 years. Because again, I don't think we can do business the same way we did today as we've done in the past. Because I think there's too many questions about what we deliver and its value and its worth. Um, there's so many conversations. You've had people on your show, I'm sure, who have talked about the same things in the debate about the value of the product that we offer. Yeah, I agree. You know, the return on investment uh, when you go to a, a, a two-year school sometimes, what I noticed was I can't tell you how many students I had over the years that walked in the door with a bachelor's and even sometimes a master's degree who's now coming to get a, an associate degree <laughs> or, sure, or a certificate, right? Yeah. yeah the, and yeah. for them, they are, that's right. They're upskilling, you know? I mean, so yeah, I, I, I'm hoping the conversation down the road is going to really change and people are just going to see, you know, everybody has different paths and we should applaud everybody for moving forward on their education, no matter what path they take. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what do you think opportunities will look like then in the future for colleges? Yeah. I, so I think, you know, the good news is, you know, you and I just talked about the the, the side that, that may be a little bit um, unsure. But but on on the other side, I think there's such a great opportunity to better commit our institutions 
to providing these relevant pathways towards work. And what I mean by that is talking earlier about our, our high tech partner, PeopleSource, you know, we our faculty met with PeopleSource leaders and we talked about what do students need to learn and what kind of opportunities should student have and students have. And, and I think the more conversations we have with our business ind uh, industry government partners, the better opportunities for our students there's going to be because there's still a significant number of jobs out there where we're the gateway. Cybersecurity is, is a great example. In the, in the United States right now, there are hundreds of thousands of open cybersecurity jobs because that field right now is one of the preeminent fields because the protection of everybody's electronic infrastructure is critical. So I think for us, some of the opportunities are working much more closely to year, four year really doesn't matter because again, when we're talking about vocations, working with our business and industry partners, providing them the type of future employees they need, hopefully along that way, providing our students opportunities to be employed while they're still in school, whether it's apprenticeships, internships, whatever it may be, giving those students an opportunity to taste the real world in that particular occupational field. Yeah. Well, what's what's been learned about online education since the pandemic, and how do you see this platform kind of evolving for both faculty and students? Man, you know, it is such a good question. You know, online learning, asynchronous learning, is a great tool. Um, the pandemic forced all of us to use it as more than just a tool. Right. Um, I think for us at our institution and maybe many others out there, a lot of our students are successful when they're in the classroom with a professor. And so online education was here to stay pre-pandemic. But now I think the thing that it's done for our customer and I think sometimes in our business, maybe we forget that students are customers. Our customers are now accustomed to a new way of delivery where I can take a hybrid course. And so half of that class can be online and half of that class can be face-to-face. -face. Or I can take a totally online class or maybe I can take a face-to-face. -face. I think we have to realize that this, this paradigm shift in delivering our product isn't going anywhere. But it comes with new challenges because for students that aren't as prepared as you would like them to be, just putting them in an online environment, hoping they will succeed is probably not the best way. And so I think we have to balance our delivery using online, using hybrid, but understanding, particularly for institutions like us, a, a primarily black institution um, as defined by the Department of Education. So more than 60% of our students are African-American. More than 70% of those students are African-American females. A lot of those students need the sort of face-to-face -face support system that you and I are probably most familiar. And so how do you balance the need for that support system with the ease and convenience? Because I can take an online class anytime I want. So I, I think it's it's really looking at the value proposition and understanding that yes, online has its place, but we also can't forget about the value of those students in a classroom with a qualified, well-credentialed, caring professor. I'd hate to lose that completely. Yeah, sure. I agree. Um, Non-traditional students sometimes struggle more at traditional type colleges. What can be done to serve this specific student population better? 
You know, I say this about our entire student population, so I include our, our non-traditional students in there, and I, I remind our team, our faculty and our staff, and I know they get tired of me saying this, but most of our students are what I describe as one flat tire away from failure. And that may sound over dramatic, but if you think about it, if you do have a flat tire or you have a battery that goes bad or you need a serpentine belt replaced on your car, a lot of these things are not inexpensive ventures. And so what if that costs you $250 and you missed a couple of days of work and your babysitter then didn't show up and you failed a test because you weren't here that entire week? And so sometimes you have this triggering event like a flat tire that literally sort of spins your life out of control. Many non-traditional students who are working parents, maybe single parents with job obligations, with family obligations, when something like that happens, then it's really easy for life to spin out of control. And so I, I think talking about the support services that we, meaning higher ed, have outside the classroom for those students. So things again, like food pantries, career closets, Emergency student loans. We we have an emergency student loan program through our foundation that it's not much. It's up to $500. But if a student needs new tires or they have a battery, there's a way for us to get them some money pretty quickly that's outside the confines of Pell Grants and student loans. And so I think as colleges and universities, one of the things we have to realize is life throws a lot of things at the way of our students. And while we can't intervene in everything, how do we put some systems in place to intervene when appropriate? When something becomes a barrier like a flat tire, how can we help remove that barrier? Well, let me ask a follow-up question then. What can campuses do to assist with some of the mental health issues that students are facing today? It's such a big, big deal. And, and you know, pre-pandemic mental health was a big deal on all of our campuses, I think, across this country. And I'll include students as well as faculty and staff. I mean, I think mental health awareness, one of the things the pandemic did was make all of us more aware about the mental fatigue that came along with it. And again, that didn't just affect students, it affected faculty and staff. And so one of the things that, that we, speaking the, the universal we in higher ed have to realize is that we've got to provide more access to mental health resources, whether that's more face-to-face -face counseling, whether that's sometimes peer counseling, whether that's an opportunity to engage in somebody maybe like you and I are talking about, um, if that's your only option, sometimes students, faculty, and staff just need someone to talk to. That doesn't suggest that they don't have some issues that, that someone who's licensed needs to take care of, but a lot of times they need a point of contact. They need someone who will listen and then perhaps put them on the road to more resources. So I would say that that one of the things we've got to do is provide more opportunities for listening because the problem with mental health is it's a lot like RNs in hospitals. It's very difficult to keep RNs at hospitals right now because of the wages they can make as traveling nurses. Right. Mental health professionals are, are in high demand. We've tried to hire a new mental health counselor uh, on two different occasions. Both of those searches failed because we couldn't come close to the types of salaries that are available out there in the rest of the world. And so that's a real issue for a lot of us. I mean, how do you provide a service when the professionals you need to provide that service, quite frankly, it's tough to be competitive. Yeah, I agree. Well, here's a fun question. If you had 
some extra budget money right now with no strings attached? How'd you spend it? You know, it, this is one of those questions where it's like, man, there are so many needs, but but I'm, I'm going to maybe give you a more unique answer. And so we've talked about internships. We've talked about apprenticeships. We've talked about those things. Obviously, students at colleges and universities have an opportunity to engage in work study. So where they work on the college and university campuses. And we know from data, students who work on our campus and go to school here are more successful because they're more engaged. But if I had a budget, I would love to have a skills-based work program where a student could go to a hospital who wanted to become an RN and work with an RN at that hospital for a month and get paid to do it. Because think about that for a moment. Becoming an RN isn't number one, an easy journey as you and I both know. Number two, the real question is, as a student, are you prepared for what you're going to see in there? Students who want to become lawyers, wouldn't it be cool if you had industry mm -hmm. partners and you could pay that student? And again, I'm not talking about an internship. I'm just talking about an exploration, right. uh, a career building exploration where a student could shadow that attorney. They could see them in court. They could see them conducting research. I mean, how many lives could we change with that kind of approach? Because maybe a student would say, you know, I always thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but man, after seeing the kind of research they do, sure. I don't know if I want to do that. Um, I don't know that you get that feeling any other way than being exposed to it in the workforce. And wouldn't it be great to have some kind of program where they could get more than a day, not just showing up and right. shadowing for a day, but getting a really good, intimate understanding of what that job means? Because Dave, I don't think we do that oh hardly at all in, in higher ed. I mean, again, we do have internships, we have apprenticeships, but to do what I'm talking about here is not something that I'm aware of anybody really putting resources towards. Well, here's my last question. Do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? Absolutely. So it's been around for a while. One of my favorite books, Jim Collins, Good to Great. I don't know if you, you've read that mm -hmm. book. I, I I absolutely love Good to Great because Jim's contention in the book is, is that there is all these companies in the United States that are good, but there are very few great organizations. And, and part of the book that I use here all the time is his talk about, about the bus. And, and in order to, to get people on the bus, the first thing you have to do is you have to decide where the bus is going. You have to decide, A, if the right people are on the bus. If they're not on the bus, are they in the right seats? Are there people that are on the bus that shouldn't be there? And it's such a great visual representation for our industry in, in higher ed. And so good to great is such, uh, I recommend it wholeheartedly because it's something that I've taken to practice since I've become a president. And, and I constantly look at, you know, where are we going? Do we have the right people to get us there? If we've got the right people, are they in the right seats? If we need more people, what does that seat look like? So, I mean, I think good to great is, is such, such a great learning example for all of us. Well, that's a nice way to end our program today. Steve, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Dave, absolutely. And thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.